Welcome to a new wave of entrepreneurship. I'm Scott Stewart, founder and CEO of Venture for Canada and your host. The focus of this podcast is to hear from changemakers and Canadian entrepreneurs to learn about how they've developed their entrepreneurial mindset and skills. In season four, we'll be chatting with CEOs, founders, and successful business leaders about their career journeys. I'm excited to dive into these conversations about how to foster your entrepreneurial mindset and drive. Erin Burry is an entrepreneur, marketer, former journalist, and startup advisor. She is the co-founder and CEO at Willful, an online estate planning platform that makes it easy for Canadians to create a will in less than 20 minutes. At Willful, she's responsible for driving the company's mission to make it easier for Canadians to prepare for and deal with death in a digital age. She previously spent six years running a Toronto-based creative communications agency, and she was on the founding team at startup publication Betakit. Erin is a frequent speaker with Speaker Spotlight and has appeared in publications including the New York Times, Forbes, and CNN. She is the co-chair of the Tech for Sick Kids Council at Sick Kids Hospital, and she's on the board at Save the Children Canada. Thank you for joining us today, Erin. How are you doing this morning? Thanks for having me, Scott. I'm doing great. Thanks. So uh, before becoming the co-founder and CEO of Willful, uh, you had a diverse professional experiences, including many in, in journalism. But one of the things I, I want to kind of zero in is what was your first job uh, in your entire life? Uh, and it could have been when you're a teenager or when, whenever. And what did you learn from that uh, experience? Yeah, my first job was as a cashier at Loblaws, the grocery store chain. And it was a great job. I loved it. I think I got the job there when I was 14. I worked there all through high school. And in summers, uh, when I was back from university, and it really kind of taught me customer service and just, you know, dealing with members of the public and how to deal with difficult situations, you know, people waiting in a grocery store line are not always in the most pleasant mood. And so um, I kind of learned to tell myself whenever I interacted with someone who was rude or who was really negative, I always told myself, maybe this is the worst day of their life. Maybe they just got really bad news. And so by framing it that way, I was able to kind of not get annoyed and to deal with people with patience. But um, yeah, it taught me a lot about, uh, about, about customer service. And I think everyone should work in the service industry. So they know what it's like on the other side of the counter. We completely agree at Venture for Canada. And I think that the experience in retail or in the service sector is super transferable to many other uh, career paths uh, later on. Um, kind of fun fact, Venture for Canada, we're doing a, a program through the Future Skills Centre where it's the re it's supporting people who have been displaced from the retail sector to enter into sales uh, in technology companies. And we're in the midst of kind of designing a program. But I often think that uh, the skills that someone gets from retail sales or just working in retail service industry in general are significantly underappreciated by most employers. So I think your, your answer is a very, really important one for, for any young people uh, or employers listening. Well, and sign me up for that program, because if you can you know, work a busy shift at a restaurant and upsell people on menu items and stuff, then you're probably going to be a great salesperson at a tech company. I agree that experience is definitely very uh, transferable. So you studied journalism in university and now you're CEO of a, a technology uh, company. How did your journalism education uh, influence your career path? Yeah. So my mom and my dad are both journalism grads. So it kind of runs in the family for us. My dad spent about 30 years as a community newspaper reporter in Belleville, Ontario. So he absolutely put the journalism degree to good use. 
uh, my mom actually pursued uh, marketing. And so she ended up working as a marketing executive at Nortel for about 30 years and still currently runs her own uh, PR and marketing consultancy. And so I really saw her career and how journalism served her. It allowed her to be a great writer. It taught her how to communicate effectively with people. It taught her how to tell a story, which I think is important in so many jobs, but especially as an entrepreneur where your origin story is something you repeat all the time. So I went to journalism school with the intention that I may not actually use journalism day to day, but I would use all of those other skills like excellent communication and storytelling and writing, regardless of what career I pursued. Uh, and then of course, you know, I did end up back in journalism, which I know we're going to get to, but, uh, but all of those skills have stood me in, in really good stead. I, I think that the, the skills of being a journalist are, are, are so important across life. I think one is just in terms of also being a good conversationalist, like the ability to ask good questions or to be a good salesperson as well. And, and it's interesting because you know, many people are familiar with this sort of decline of newspapers and a lot of traditional uh, journalism with the rise of, of the internet. And there's a lot of talk about kind of the decline of, of journalism. But I think that that journalist uh, mindset and mentality is perhaps more important uh, today. And particularly with the, the sort of onslaught of like fake, you know, people uh, trying to discredit truth or facts, the, the uh, having people with the education of, of being journalists, I think is super important, not just for individuals in their careers, but also for, for society at large. For sure. And I mean, I went to journalism school from 2003 to 2007. So you can imagine the curriculum and what you're learning in 2021 is wildly different from what we learned back then. I mean, we barely touched on things like you know, online news and podcasts. So it was a very kind of traditional journalism education, which I found um, quite interesting. But to your point, I think journalism teaches you curiosity. And actually, it can be a downside because I often go for coffee with people or have meetings and I, I'm grilling them and I don't realize, but I'm just so uh, trained and naturally curious that I'm constantly firing questions at people, asking them to tell me their life story. And sometimes they'll stop me and say, did you ever work as a journalist? Because I treat kind of every meeting like a media interview. Out of interest, when you started your journalism uh, degree, Erin, were you intending to, did you want to be like a, like work in a newspaper or, or pursue a more traditional journalism path? I actually meant to pursue marketing, um, actually from day one of journalism school. And it's interesting because on the first day of journalism school, there's, you know, 200 plus people, largely women, which was really great to see. Uh, and they, one of the profs said, okay, put your hand up if you want to be a foreign correspondent. And all these hands went up and put your hand up if you want to be a news anchor on the TV news. All these hands go up. Put your hand up if you want to be a newspaper reporter. More hands. And then they said, you know, put your hand up if you want to pursue a career outside of journalism. And I think I was the only person that put my hand up. So I was kind of a black sheep in journalism from the beginning because I didn't aspire to have this career working day to day in journalism. Instead, I wanted to take those skills and parlay them into a career in marketing. And it's kind of ironic because to your point, the media industry and um, news has really gone through this challenging time since 2007 when I graduated. And so many of my classmates are now actually you know, working on the marketing side at agencies or for companies, or they've started their own companies and aren't working in journalism. So, um, you know, I, I felt a bit out of, you know, out of touch with the rest of the class while I was there. But now, you know, it's obvious that journalism actually does give you the skills to really kind of 
pursue a, a ton of different careers. There, as a good example of that is there's actually, we've had a few venture for Canada fellows who graduated from the Ryerson uh, journalism program. And one has actually uh, parlayed his journalism experience into becoming like a very successful uh, professional DJ. Uh, which, uh, by the way, Latifa, who is the uh, the producer of the show, is also a DJ um, on, on the site. But uh, Cormac, uh, anyway, he's a Venture for Canada fellow, a very Irish <laughs> in his first name and, and uh, last name. But uh, it, it's a good, his kind of career is a great example of, uh, you know, I think he leverages journalism experience to, to understand public relations and how you build a brain for yourself. And because that's so much of being, I think, a successful DJ from the little I know and from in terms of talking to him. Uh, but it's an example. Journalism, you can be a tech CEO, you can become a DJ. You, there's many different uh, different paths. There uh, you go. To... I don't know if I'm going to pursue the DJ route, Scott, but you know, I, I wholeheartedly respect it. There are many CEOs that can be uh, uh, have a side gig of DJ. The CEO of uh, of Goldman Sachs, actually, uh, David Solomon, is a uh, is a DJ on the side. You can say like DJ Diesel or something. So anyway, if it, but point being is that you could you could potentially enter the the uh, the, the CEO crew that does uh, <laughs> side hustle uh, DJ. It could be a mat leave hobby. Yeah, exactly. Go. I'll add it to the list. Uh, on the topic of marketing agencies, uh, you led 88 Creative, which is an agency that primarily works with uh, startups. And by agency for listeners, I mean marketing agency. Uh, so one thing I would say from Venture for Canada's experience, you know, we're, we're in essence kind of like a charity startup. We now employ you know 30 people. Uh, so not a huge organization, but uh, worked with agencies from probably when since we were, were hit around 10 people. Um, and one of the things I've sometimes struggled with is how when you're a smaller organization, how to successfully work with with a with a marketing agency, because a lot of agencies are built more to work with huge uh, kind of clients. So what are some best practices, Aaron, for how startups can successfully work with with marketing agencies? It's a great question, Scott. And I used to get people all the time who would come in to meet with us about doing work with them. And they just had such negative experiences in the past with agencies. They had been burned, whether it was a PR agency or design or um, digital marketing. And often the reason came down to, it was just a bad fit. And that's partly the onus on the startup for not doing the right type of due diligence and partly on the agency for taking a client that just wasn't right for them. So I think if you're a startup considering hiring an agency, the best thing you can do is to do your homework, to ask the right questions and to do the diligence to make sure that the size of agency is right for you and that your size of company is right for them. And that means asking yourself, asking them, you know, will I be your largest client or your smallest client? If you're working with an agency that works with Coca-Cola, they're not going to really pay that much attention to you if their you know, main client is Coca-Cola and they're paying them millions of dollars a year. Whereas if the agency works with mostly small clients, then you're probably going to get the same level of attention that all of their other clients do. Uh, you also want to ask about their you know, areas of expertise and really make sure that those match up with what you're looking for. So for example, we'd have folks that had hired PR agencies and they were, let's say, B2B SaaS. And the PR agency that they hired was a lifestyle agency that works with restaurants. Well, that's just not going to be the right fit because those people's expertise is in a completely different area of technology. The relationships that they have with journalists are completely outside the scope of, of of who you're trying to target. And so of course they're gonna to struggle to be successful. 
Um, and then I think you have to ask, do the due diligence on not just the case studies that they're going to put in the presentation deck, but actually taking the time to talk to past clients, both the names that they've provided to you, but also doing a bit of digging on your own to see if you can find a couple of folks that they don't put in the reference list and to ask them about you know, how, how was working with them? What was their level of professionalism? How was the client service? What did they do when things weren't going well? Because that, that always happens. I mean, it's not a guarantee that everything's going to go well, but what's more important is how they pivot, how they're resourceful and how they actually make sure that they're delivering results. So those are probably the three biggest tips. Make sure the size of agency is a fit for your organization make sure that their area of expertise is what you actually need, and then do your due diligence to look into past clients and talk to current clients to make sure that they check all your boxes of what you're looking for. To work with a wide variety of different professional services. So if you're working with uh, a, uh, a lawyer, uh, or if you're working with accountants, or if you're working with uh, literally any you know, HR consultants, uh, yeah, I think that those are tips that are all very uh, applicable. So you went from running 88 Creative, which is a, uh, a marketing agency, a services business, to now running Willful, which is a, a technology you know, product-based business. And we'll talk more about uh, Willful later. What was that transition like going from running a, a services company to, to, a, to a product uh, company? Yeah, it's, it's so different, Scott, and in a couple of ways. The first and most obvious way is that at an agency, most of your day and most of your time is dictated by your clients. You know, if a client calls you and says, I have an emergency, you drop everything. It's, and your day is usually scheduled around client project work, client meetings, new business meetings. It's all about the client. Whereas when you transition to a product company, um, your day is, is kind of your own. And so it, it almost felt a bit uh, freeing in the sense that there was nobody dictating our calendars, but then also there's this pressure of, oh, I have to dictate what the priorities are and where we should be spending time. Um, one liberating thing about not being in an, a service business is not having to track time. <laughs> if anyone's ever worked in, you know, as a lawyer or any sort of hourly consultant, then you know that tracking time is kind of the bane of your existence. But I would say at a product company, you're not tracking your time down to the minute because you're billing clients back, but you do have to be conscious of where you're spending your time and ask yourself, you know, is this the highest value, highest impact work that I can be doing? Uh, so it is more self-policing at a product company versus really external factors deciding that at a services business. The other thing I've learned, which I think is interesting for any aspiring entrepreneur is how difficult it is to get any sort of um, bank loans, credit cards, or funding as a product company. When you're a service business and you have a list of clients, you inherently have accounts receivable. These clients all owe you money and you can actually get lines of credit and um, non-dilutive funding against that list of accounts receivable. Whereas in a company like Willful, we couldn't get a dollar from the banks for years. We ran the company off of my personal credit cards. Um, and so it, it, it's definitely more difficult to get those early funding sources when you are a product company versus a service business. And it's interesting on that point. Uh, I think that that's the reason why sometimes some of the most successful product companies start out as service companies because they use the, uh, and as an example, Hootsuite, but come from uh, came from a marketing agency. The, the marketing agency designed the product for the clients, and then they kind of use the money from the, the sort of the services side of the business to then fuel the, the product business. 
even Shopify too, and famously started selling uh, snowboards, like in essence, like, you know, more of a, uh, a service type business. Like they were in essence, like an e-commerce business when they first started, uh, and then would have used this, you know, those profits to fund uh, the sort of development of, of the actual product. Uh, it is interesting. I, I admire a lot of product-based entrepreneurs because it is super uh, tough. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, I think that uh, there's a lack of access to capital for early stage uh, kind of entrepreneurs uh, in the country, which results in a lot of entrepreneurs like yourself, Aaron, having to take huge personal risk. Uh, and then when you do take out loans, um, having to uh, you know often need to personally secure the loans, uh, which obviously then even adds more risk. Uh, so out of interest, what do you think could should be done uh, to provide more financing options for early stage entrepreneurs in Canada? Oh, Scott, we don't have enough time on this podcast for me to go into my rant on early stage financing. But um, but yeah, I mean, the gist of it is it's very difficult to get any sort of financing when you're an entrepreneur, service business or not. Um, and it's especially difficult to get funding or any sort of capital that is not personally guaranteed or dilutive, right? You can raise equity financing, but you're giving away a chunk of your company and you can get a line of credit from the bank, maybe um, if your personal finances are, 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 are good and you have a good credit score, but you're personally guaranteeing that to your point. So you're basically saying, I'm already putting a ton of risk into my company by starting a company. And now I have to worry that if it doesn't work out, which let's be honest, a lot don't, my house might get, you know, I have to sell my house or give up my personal assets. So it's really kind of, it puts you between a rock and a hard place. And that's why so many early stage founders like myself had to run things off their personal credit cards because they're not able to get credit cards, had to basically get creative. Like we, we just had to uh, focus on revenue from early days. I advise a company called Quill and the founder of Fatima. Uh, it's a podcasting technology platform, but they've built a really successful podcast agency because to your point, Scott, they need they couldn't get funding for the tech side of it. And so they're, they're launching these services just as a way to pay the bills because you can charge for your time from day one. You can't always charge for a tech product. In my opinion, the thing that I think um, could fill the gap is some of these new... Um, charge cards that are coming out like float card and try Jeeves. The U S equivalent is, is called Brex. And these actually give you a credit card that is secured by your bank balance. So as you kind of make more money, they raise the limit on it. Um, they're not, you know, an ideal solution, but it allows you to have a credit card that isn't your personal credit card, which is nice. Uh, and then I think ClearCo has actually filled a big gap for non-dilutive funding. It's not the perfect solution to get you from zero to 100,000 in revenue because they want you to have about 10K in monthly revenue, but it's not personally guaranteed. It's non-dilutive in that they're not taking any equity and the interest rates are actually much lower than some government sources like BDC. So um, if I was a new entrepreneur, I'd be looking into ClearCo, I'd be looking into something like Floatcard or TriGs, and I'd also be looking into loan sources like Futurepreneur that are designed for young entrepreneurs um, and are specifically meant to kind of help fund those really, really early days. Yeah, Futurepreneur is a great uh, resource for people, especially when they're first getting going. And, and I think in collaboration with BDC, I think they can lend up to like 50K uh, now, which uh, it can go a long way when people are first uh, get every dollar matters in that, that really early stage. And uh, yeah, I, I agree. I hear that a lot from there's a it's interesting because there's in it, 
the ecosystem, like, or the, just the, the Canadian startup media, there's a lot about growth stage funding, which I think is also uh, important. Um, and there's certainly a lot more money that's going into growth stage funding. I know Via just raised like a large growth stage uh, fund. Uh, and there's lots of other VCs that are raising that. But but I, uh, I think, and there's a lot of conversation around scale ups in the building. How do you build more multi-billion dollar companies in Canada? But in all that conversation about fostering scale-ups, we also can't forget about really about small companies and that there's also capital that is going uh, for them. One, we've interviewed a few different angel investors um, on this uh, podcast, uh, Aaron. Um, to, to what extent do you think angel investors can fill that uh, that gap uh, for, for early stage financing? I think they're really the only ones that are filling that gap. I mean, it's funny because when I was running Betakit, the startup publication, I interviewed so many entrepreneurs who raised funding, but I had never done it myself. So once I actually went through the fundraising process, I realized just how difficult it is and that for early stage companies, and I'm talking you know, pre-seed, pre-seed round VC stage, it's very, your options are very limited. You're either looking at loans or you're looking at angel investors because a lot of the venture capital firms, they don't really want to touch you until you have product market fit, until you have you know high six or seven figures in revenue, and until you have proven traction. And to your point, Scott, it's kind of a catch-22 because how do I get to that stage without having an injection of capital? And the answer often is angel investors. So at Willful, for example, uh, we raised some friends and family funding, which I know comes from a place of privilege in that we had friends and family to give us money. They gave us each around $5,000. So it's not like I have a rich uncle who gave me seven figures, but um, that was really the only way that we were able to get the company off the ground was some of those early quote unquote angel investors, even though they were friends and family. Um, and we raised a pre-seed round of about half a million dollars that was partly from Founder Fuel, the startup accelerator, but the rest was just angel investors, mostly Shopify executives um, and other folks in our network. And without their capital, I don't think we would have been able to raise from any sort of VC fund or traditional um, institutional investor. So I think they fill a massive gap. And we're also seeing more um, women and diversity focused angel investors coming on the scene like Arti Sharma from, uh, from Shopify and Backbone Angels. So it's also great to see that they're not just funding the Ivy League educated white males. They're really trying to diversify the type of founder that they fund, which is really important. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think the success of Shopify is a great example of how scale of companies are super important for economic development in general, because all of the people from Shopify, A, it's it's one of the greatest accelerators of entrepreneurial talent in the country in the sense of people from Shopify leave to go to create their own companies, but also tons of Shopify people, uh, executives or just also regular employees made um, small fortunes off Shopify stock, which they can then use to invest in uh, different uh, technology startups uh, as angel investors. So uh, the more kind of companies we get at that scale up level, it has a huge trickle down effect, I think, on the broader startup ecosystem. How do we really foster uh, a much larger angel investor uh, kind of group that could be as the more people who are actively uh, angel investing, the, the more capital that, that entrepreneurs can, can gain access to. So the more people who can actually launch their own companies, addressing the, the lack of access to capital uh, issue that, that, that you brought up here. Kind of going back a little bit to the uh, to Willful, which by the way, is a amazing company. And uh, I my partner and I use it for, for our own wills. Um, but can you walk us through, Aaron, a little bit? What is what is the founding story and, and kind of the genesis behind uh, Wiffle? Well, here I get to put my journalism skills into action, Scott, with those uh, those storytelling.
selling lessons that I got. Uh, really all of the credit for Willful's origin goes to my husband and co-founder Kevin. Um, it was when his, his uncle passed away unexpectedly a few years ago and uh, we were really scrambling to find answers to some of those common questions that you have when a relative passes away. If you've ever experienced that, you know that, you know, you're talking about, do they want to be cremated or buried? What type of ceremony do they want? What do they want to wear at the ceremony or songs to be played? Uh, did they have life insurance and where's the paperwork? What about other important papers and how to access their bank accounts and financials? And so as our family was kind of sitting around arguing about these things and debating them and searching for them, Kevin just thought to himself, you know, everyone's going to go through losing a loved one. There has to be a better way to kind of plan for this and to make things easier on the family that you leave behind. So uh, when we looked into it, we just found that there was some really great options for estate planning digitally in countries like the UK and in the US, but Canada was a little bit further behind and none of the tools out there spoke to us as kind of digital natives in our 30s. So uh, we sought out to set out to build something that spoke to us and we really called it, you know, the well simple for estate planning in the early days because we just really admired the simplicity of well simple and also the fact that it was taking a very opaque complicated process, investing and democratizing it and making it accessible to anybody. And that's really the kind of the mission behind Willful. Out of interest, what happens currently uh, if a Canadian uh, passes away um, and let's say they have a fair amount of assets and there's no will? Yeah. So if you pass away without a will, a couple of things happen. Number one, uh, in a will, you appoint a person called an executor, who's the person that really is in charge of uh, being your representative after you're gone, wrapping up your estate, taking care of your funeral and burial wishes, making sure your beneficiaries get paid out. If you pass away without a will, the court is going to appoint that person. Uh, and it may not be the person that you would have wanted. They're also going to appoint guardians for minor children if you have any. And again, if you have that weird brother-in-law that you definitely don't want taking care of your kids, then appointing a guardian in your will is important. Uh, and for anybody who doesn't have um, kids, and that's not a concern, your assets will be distributed according to a provincial formula. And that's the one that really kind of makes people pay attention. Oh, I worked my entire life to accumulate these assets. Even if they're not huge, you probably have something, whether it's personal belongings or a savings account, uh, and they may not actually go to who I would, would want them to go to. So a will kind of puts you in the driver's seat and allows you to say where you want your assets to go versus that government formula deciding it for you. I can imagine you have heard probably many horror stories of people who have not had wills. I have definitely heard a lot of horror stories, but it's so common, Scott. I mean, about 57% of Canadians, uh, Canadian adults don't have a will. That number is about 89% amongst um, 34s and under. So I'm 36, so I'm just above that and I do have a will. But uh, but yeah, it's it's super common. And I think it's because it's, it's a pretty complex um, process to think about, right? You kind of think of wills and you think of lawyers and legalese and expensive and I don't understand what's involved with it. And we don't learn about estate planning in school. We probably don't learn about it at the dinner table because it's kind of this taboo topics. And to actually take care of it, it's also inconvenient and expensive or it can be. So I think that just leads to um, people just not prioritizing it or not taking the time to actually put one together. Um, and most people that do have a will, it's either because they've lost a loved one and they've seen what happens when you don't have one, 
or like you, Scott, they've gone through a, a life change that made them think about it. So getting married, having a child, buying a home, retiring, etc. Um, so you, you know, getting a will when you uh, purchase property is, is, is exactly what I would expect and kudos. Thanks. Yeah, I, I highly recommend, regardless of your age, set up a, a will. Uh, and even if someone doesn't have financial assets, it's good to like, what's your preference? Do you want to get cremated? Do you want to, uh, you know, be buried in the ground? Is there any specific things you want? Uh, um, you know, for instance, my part partner in his will, he has something where he's like a certain amount of a couple thousand dollars would go to hosting like a party. <laughs> that would be like a, a dinner uh, with the kind of closest friends. Uh, and you can, you know, I think, uh, and to your point, Aaron, people, two of the things people don't like talking about the most are death and money. <laughs> and that combines wills. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, um, it's not just about the, uh, the stuff that's in your will. A will says who's going to get your stuff and who's going to take care of your dependents. To me, especially for younger people, it's also about your digital footprint, right? If you think about it, how many online accounts do you have? How many subscriptions? How many places do you have money stored? It's not like the 1980s where you have one bank account and maybe an investment account. I have you know, crypto with CoinSquare and some investments with Mocha and, you know, Wealthsimple, as well as my main bank, as well as my financial advisor's investment account. So we have really disparate finances today, and we also have really deep digital footprints. And that is kind of the biggest mess to clean up when someone passes away. And I have heard so many horror stories about people who can't get access to their partner's social media accounts or PayPal account to, to withdraw their balance. And um, that I actually think should probably be top of mind for everyone listening, especially if you're someone who does have crypto or other digital assets and you want to make sure that they're not stuck in the digital ether when you pass away. Out of interest, how much does it cost uh, a person to create a will if they went to like just like a sort of standard run-of-the-mill uh, lawyer? Uh, and then how much does it cost for them to, to use uh, your service? And, and what are some of the, the benefits just kind of in general of your service versus going to a, a traditional lawyer? Yeah, for sure. Well, I want to start, especially because there's usually a lawyer listening. I want to say our, our goal at Willful is not to displace or replace lawyers. You know, there's absolutely a place for estate lawyers, especially if you're someone who has a complex situation or you just want legal advice. Willful is really like the TurboTax for estate planning. So similar to TurboTax, if you have a pretty simple financial situation, it's probably going to be a great fit for your taxes. But as you, you know, develop more complexity, you might graduate to using an accountant. And that's really how to think about willful. It may be a fit for you forever because your situation never becomes complex, or it may be a fit for a few years and then you decide to use a lawyer. Really the biggest uh, advantages to willful are cost and convenience. So, and, and just the, the simplicity of doing it online. So typically what you would do is you would go into a lawyer's office, have an initial meeting. They would send you a Microsoft Word document with a lot of the types of questions that we would ask you. You would fill out their template and then they would kind of work it into their existing legal document and then Bob's your uncle. And that's probably gonna cost you anywhere from $800 to $1,500. Unless you're in a really small community, then you may be able to get that service for four or $500. Um, but you're also going to pay every time you go back to update your will, because as your life changes, as you have more kids or move provinces or, um, you know, get married or divorced, you're going to want to go in and make sure that document is up to date and you're going to pay every time you go back. With a platform like Willful, you can do it online, so you don't have to go into anybody's office. 
we kind of guide you through the process like TurboTax, so you don't have to necessarily know anything about estate planning going in. We generate PDF documents for you that you can print and sign. Unfortunately, the law says you have to have a paper copy with a physical signature, uh, but we hope that changes soon. Uh, and you don't have to pay for updates. So as you come back to change your will, you're paying a one-time fee and you're not incurring more costs in future. And uh, for just a will on Willful, it's $99. If you want a will and power of attorney documents, it's $149. Uh, and power of attorney documents are not fun to talk about. They're the ones that say, if Scott is ever injured or incapacitated and he can't manage his own finances or health, this is who would do that for him, uh, but also equally as important to the will. So for about 149 bucks, you're getting all three of those with free updates in future versus, you know, a thousand, two thousand bucks over your lifetime. Huge cost savings for uh, uh, consumers. And I would say also from a person who is actually useful for a super easy to use product. So earlier in the conversation, you mentioned about how your uh, business partner is also your husband. And you're actually the first person on the podcast that I've interviewed that um, uh, works with their spouse uh, in kind of an entrepreneurial capacity. So what advice do you have for entrepreneurs or, or people in business that also uh, work with their spouses uh, full time? Yeah, I mean, I never thought that we would be working together. I mean, Kev's background is in trades and he's always been super entrepreneurial, but I just figured when he started a company, it would be custom home building or something to that effect to leverage his skill set. And, uh, you know, to his credit, he said, nope, I'm really passionate about this tech business and I want to kind of pivot my career. And obviously it's, it's worked out well so far. Um, so we found ourselves working together and, uh, when I tell people they have one of two reactions, they either say, oh, that's so awesome. I also work with my partner or they say, oh my God, how do you work with your partner? I would murder them. This it sounds like a disaster waiting to happen. And the truth of it is Kevin and I are very different. He is absolutely the creative one. He is not type A. His, he's not the like organized person with task lists and to-do lists, but he's so creative. He's a big thinker. And he really focuses on kind of the future product suite at Willful. You know, now that wills and power of attorney documents are what we're known for, how do we go beyond that and actually uh, build other products and services? Whereas I'm more, more type A, super organized, um, the typical kind of business person entrepreneur, um, so we don't work super closely together because honestly, our, our working styles are not compatible and we often end up butting heads if we try to work directly together. So Kev works really closely with our COO, Julia, who's amazing. Um, but I can't imagine not having him in the business. What my favorite thing about Willful is that I have someone who's really close to me personally, who knows every up and down, who I can talk to about it, who doesn't judge me if I'm answering emails at 11 p.m., who, you know, is as committed to it as I am. So we often say, you know, people say, I can't imagine working with my partner. And I say, I, I can't imagine working without my partner in the business now. And I, I, it sounds like you have uh, very complementary skill sets, which I, which I think is a key probably component, I think probably probably just like in general uh, with business partners, if, if the skill sets are too similar, uh, it doesn't work out as well because pe people end up doing the same work uh, versus when you have the very complementary skill sets, you're able to kind of focus on different parts of the business. So Aaron, it has been a pleasure uh, chatting with you today. We've talked about a wide range of topics, everything from uh, your experience in journalism at the beginning of your career to your experience building Willful and the importance of uh, all Canadians, whether you're older or younger, to have a will and what are the negative consequences if you don't. Uh, it has been a true pleasure chatting with you. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. And you're a great interviewer. So thank you. Thank you.
That's it for this week's episode of A New Wave of Entrepreneurship. Stay connected with us via our social and our email list. Subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss our next episode. If you have feedback on today's episode, tweet us at Venture4Canada, that is Venture, the number four, Canada, or email us at podcast at Venture4, that's spelled F-O-R, Canada.ca. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. I'm Scott Stewart, and until next time, stay safe, stay motivated, and stay grateful. A New Wave of Entrepreneurship is produced by Winita Lee Garcia and Latifa Farah. Editing and mixing also done by Latifa Farah. Erica Ormiston is our editorial assistant. Mark Wallach and Premium Beat own the copyright and publishing rights related to the song used in this podcast. The comments and opinions, recommendations, or suggestions expressed on the podcast by the guests are not liable to Venture for Canada and belong solely to each individual. Any information provided stated by our guests and our host is independent of Venture for Canada. A new wave of entrepreneurship is a Venture for Canada brand and all content is owned by Venture for Canada. If you'd like to use our content, please reach out to us at podcast at venture4, that's spelled F-O-R, Canada.ca.